Before the start of this next episode, I wanted to thank you all for taking the time to listen, comment, share and give me feedback on this podcast, Protect and Serve. When I set out on this journey to create a new and fresh podcast on the lives of our men and women in policing, I would never have thought it would have received as much support as it has. My goal now is to get more and more people to support the show, so I in turn can support two incredible organisations, PTSD 999 and Trojan Wellbeing, both supporting men and women of our emergency services who are affected by mental health from the challenges they face in their professional lives. So please, if you haven't already, like, follow and share the show so we can all help those that help us when we need it most. It means so much to me and it means so much to them. Thank you. My name is Oliver Lawrence. I spent over 12 years as a police officer serving in some of the harshest environments Australia has to offer. Now working as a senior investigator, security intelligence and crisis management expert in London, I've had the chance to meet and speak with some of the brave men and women of law enforcement who found themselves at the front line of the world's most infamous investigations and global incidents. From the underworld of bikey gangs and the mafia to terrorist attacks of unthinkable magnitude. In this series, I'll sit down with these brave men and women to hear their first-hand accounts of these events and how they got there. Welcome to Protect and Serve. This just in, you were looking at a, obviously a very disturbing live shot there. That is the World Trade Center. Killer Zelfadine Rezji has just entered the hotel grounds. He's looking for targets. The outcome in U.S. District Court today was not good for New Jersey boss Tony Pro Provenzano. Just how seriously the police are taking claims of abuse at the hands of Jimmy Savile came into sharp focus. In the U.K., police identifying the suspect who killed two people on London Bridge. Police say they are investigating a suspected connection with a radical Republican organization, the new IRA. Freedom itself was attacked this morning by a faceless coward. Earth. and freedom will be defended. For over 25 years, he played the role of the stable, calm and ever-present PC Tony Stamp from Sunhill Police Station, Sierra Oscar 595. Graham Cole's character and his ability to play him so well inspired generations of young men and women like myself to pursue a career in policing. Graham Cole, OBE, is undoubtedly one of the greatest British actors the UK has ever produced in a UK drama series. He appeared in over a thousand episodes on the bill and it was a shock to people all over the world when he departed our screens in 2009 when his character PC Tony Stamp took up a position at Hendon as a driving instructor. Since his departure from the bill Graham has gone on to do some amazing work in pantomimes right up and down the country. He has done charity work throughout his career and was awarded an OBE for this very work. More recently, Graham has been championing the cause of PTSD 999, a cause which is dear to his heart and one that supports emergency service workers who are suffering from the effects of post-traumatic stress disorder and other mental health-related illnesses. The message is simple. It's okay not to be okay. Graham is a lovely human being and has still so much to give on our TV screens with his career far from over. His recent appearance in the short movie Broken Glass, A Fragile Mind, is another example of his incredible ability to act out the part of a police officer 
fighting with the struggles of post-traumatic stress disorder. He is remarkable, and it was an honour to sit down with him recently to talk about his life in acting, the character that was PC Tony Stamp, and the importance of getting the stories right in their representation so that viewers captured an insight into the lives of our frontline police officers. All this and more next on Protect and Serve. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Protect and Serve, a podcast which, you know, as I've said recently, quite openly, I'm very much enjoying carrying out and investigating the lives of police officers, not only locally and nationally across the UK, but globally as well, because they're fascinating stories. We talk about ordinary people doing extraordinary work, and I think it's so important to remember there are thousands of men and women that carry out this duty every day in public service and make so many sacrifices. So it's been an amazing journey. But those officers that enter into policing often have many inspirations, and I reflect personally on my own inspirations. And I I spoke recently, quite openly, in a recent interview I did with um, former uh, Lambeth Commander Simon Foy. My two inspirations in policing, Commander Foy was one of the first people I came across as a young man, as a police skiller, and he inspired me that I wanted to to look at the higher ranks of policing because I'd love to have run a borough. But equally, we also have this other world of the documentaries and the TV series that we watch, which inspired us to, to pursue careers that we love. And policing and the bill was one for me that I watched religiously weekly and watch the characters undertake the role of policing from driving area cars to investigating serious offences to to running police stations on iconically Sun Hill Police Station. And it's with that in mind that recently I reached out to probably without doubt, one of the most recognisable actors of our TV screens for over 20 years on the bill, a a gentleman that inspired my journey into policing and wanting to get behind the wheel of a quick Ford Sierra or a Vauxhall Vectra and those fast area cars. So without a shadow of doubt and without further ado, I want to welcome Graham Cole to the podcast. Graham, welcome. How are you? Bless you, Ollie. Thank you. What an introduction. I'm not quite sure I can keep up with that. (laughs) Fantastic. Thank you so much. No, it's an absolute pleasure. So for the context of viewers outside of the UK, and there will be very few that don't need to know the the character you played, it was PC Tony Stamp, more than 25 years on our TV screens. Uh-oh, look who's here already. Don't believe it. Again. But before we get to that iconic character and the important role he played in your life and in our lives as viewers and as police officers, I want to go right back to the start and ask you, how did you get into the world of acting? All right. Well, bless you. First of all, thank you, Ollie, for that introduction. That's very, very humbling. Really, really was. Um, you're far too young to know, but your dad will remember that um, there used to be a thing called Saturday morning cinema. And for sixpence, and I'll explain to that when we're off air, for sixpence, you could um, get a drink, a bottle of uh, a pop, um, sort of popcorn, and watch two films. And it was morning, in the mornings. Um, one would be um, sort of a, a trailer for war and all that sort of stuff, you know, and, and, and I love the black and whites um, in which we serve and all those kind of things. And the other would be the more current sort of the John Waynes, the Humphrey Bogarts, that, that kind of. And, uh, and I used to look at my peers and I honestly, I remember, I think, I want to do that. I was looking at their faces. I wanted to make that happen in other people's faces. So from eight, 
up until 20, that was my goal. And my mum and dad were a brother and sister of St. John when they retired. So I went into St. John's when I was nine. Um, I do a one-man show and I usually open it by going and talking about school and say I was only good at two things, going to and coming home. The rest of it, <laughs> the rest of it was a bit of a blur. Other than English, I could write essays about anything. So kind of history was okay. Geography was a bit, sort of maths, but maths and, and, and most actors do not go together. This is why we act for a living. And again, most of us can't do anything else, to be quite honest. But uh, through my schooling, it would be folk groups, rock groups, any plays, any chance to perform. And, and I was a church member, so you got loads of chances to go out there and sing and all that sort of stuff. And I loved it. And really, uh, when I was 16, you had to make that decision of what you're going to do, or 15 in a bit. My sisters, one got um, the 11 plus. There was more chance of me becoming an emperor just <laughs> me passing the <laughs> plus. And my other sister Jill uh, left school quite early, but she went into the PA world. So they were very successful, both of them. Uh, the only thing I was good at, and probably a lot of policemen that I've spoken to over the years as well, was sport. And if you were good at sport and you played tennis for the school and cricket and rugby was my thing. I was never really into football, I played a bit. Uh, you always got a great report at the end of the year. And certainly when I first went off to, to, um, to Hendon and I spoke to the chief super there, who was running the place, he, he was a great rugby nut. And you, you kind of got on to the, the driving course, officially you boys are in it for real, if you were a rugby player, because he wanted <laughs> you in his team. And that seemed to me to be pretty fair. So that, that was really uh, my young life. Um, I was very, very fortunate. I was born in Wilsdon in North London, uh, but dad moved us when I was about six to Harlow in Essex. Uh, and it was just fields. So I went from... Uh, you know, the, all that uh, two up, two down enclosure of Wilsdon to fields. So I worked the farms and all that sort of stuff uh, from 14, 15. And uh, if you go to Harlow now, in the town park, there is a pet's corner. And I started that when I was 11 with a mate, Pete Maynard. One of the things about my life, Ollie, if someone says you can't, it's a red rag to me. I cannot bear that word. And I just look at people in the eye and go, take the tea off. So let's, so, so talking about, you know, your early exit into acting. When did you get your first real break in terms of this exposure to something that you'd seen on the screen and then suddenly wanted to carry out yourself? It's a strange thing because when I had to make that decision at 16, because I've been in uh, St. John's from, from the age of nine, that was the only other thing I knew. And Dad was insisted I did something successful. He knew I only wanted to be an actor. Remember in those days, unless you were very rich or had the kind of contacts that, uh, that you had, uh, you didn't go to drama school. <laughs> so... Um, that was a sort of a, a kind of a no-no for us. Uh, but uh, I went into the health service. And uh, the only thing I could do to start with that was, was portrait. Uh, I couldn't have any uh, patient contact, they said. Although I think I was there two weeks and I was into x-ray and wheeling people about and doing all sorts of things. And uh, I had this terrible habit of, of singing all day long. It drives people nuts. I mean, if I go in the shower at five in the morning if I'm filming and stuff, I have to be so careful because I just want to sing. But as people will tell you, I don't know songs all the way through. So I'll start with one song, then I'll go into another song. And I, it just drives people nuts. But I was doing that. And my first job in the mornings was to sweep a quarter of a mile long corridor. And I'd be humming and singing on the way down. And there was this guy, the orthopedic surgeon, Henry Poirier. And he kept asking me to go and join his amateur singing group, uh, which were doing Ilanthi, I think. And I go, no, no, no. And in the end, he sort of came up and said, oh, you've got a great voice. I want you to please come and do this amateur thing. I'm like, I don't really want to do it. He said, I'll make you a deal. You come and do this, and I'll train you in orthopedics. It seemed a fair, fair gig for wow. me. So I actually went off to the Royal National Orthopedic uh, Hospital in Stanmore 
and learned yeah. um, to be a plaster technician. And of course, at that hospital there, if you, if you know anything about it, it's spinal cases, it's burns, it's guys coming yeah. back from war, it's massive. And uh, and I loved it. But one of the things from the whole of my experience, and I got into, t- I was outside the deputy head's office so many times because I just couldn't, if a teacher was rubbish, I'd have to tell them that. And I can remember being in front of the deputy head once and, and Mr. Godsman, and he, he, I looked at him in the eye and said, well, you tell me, I went to the teacher, you tell me he's a good teacher and I'll shut up. And he looked me in the eye and that's not the point. <laughs> so I, I've, always, I've always had that straight. And so what I found quite early on, Ollie, is that um, fractures hurt. There's no, there's no easy way about it. If we're reducing fractures, it hurts. And I, I'd be changing classes and stuff and changing a little bit of positioning on scaphoids and things like that. And so I would say something stupid. And while they were laughing, I'd done it. So it kind of worked. And uh, I brought music into the plaster room, a little radio playing, just to take the tension away a little bit. I mean, it had to be disinfected and passed by about 14,000 different bits of paper. You know that well, don't you? Yeah, that's right. Certainly do. <laughs> but that, that was my beginning. So then in, in 1974, I said to Dad, look, I've done this. I'm, I was well, and I was covering all the London hospitals. I mean, I was flying around on my motorbike and uh, covering casualty. And uh, very scarily, I used to see these boys coming in, coming come off their motorbikes, you know, and I'd, I'd be sort of in the treatment room with the guys and get on my motorbike and then go back home at about 11 miles an hour, <laughs> just, just with the thought of, you know, they told me what had happened to me. And I was always, because I was a big old lump, I was part of the, the cardiac team, so I'd, my bleep would go off and I'd run and do external cardiac massage. Uh, for for the nurses, you know, some big old lump, but all of that was experience, and all of that has been locked away. And when you say about playing characters, um, that the, the research part of it is what I love. So, 1974, I went off and I red coated down in Canberra Sands, and of course, not so much now, but in those days, you had to have like three acts of your own. Uh, it was there that I realised I'd never be a comic. <laughs> so forget that idea. <laughs> I used to start start working it through and then forget what the tagline was, which didn't help very much. But uh, I would sing, and that that would be the gigs. And, and you work with great great bands, you know, that come in and great guest artists. Uh, and that was my start. I was also so during the day I was sports organizer at night. I'd have to do these various shows and things. But again, you saw great cabaret acts coming through, so it was fantastic uh, for me. And then uh, that's 1974, and that summer. I had Thursdays off. Uh, the stage newspaper was a place to get jobs at the time. And so I looked in there and they were asking for chorus uh, personnel to join Delphont and Grade. I went up to the one audition, got with June Perkins singers were what we were. And uh, then from that December, I went into Panto for the wow. first time in uh, at, uh, the Hippodrome in Bristol with Dora Bryan, uh, who was great. And um, I don't remember all the names now. I should have written them down. But um, so try when you do a one-man show, you know, I start a story, Ollie, and I think, oh, my, <laughs> what is their name? <laughs> but um, it was a start of Bertie Hare and great people. And I've done 40 pantos now, something like that. Wow. But uh, it was the voice that kept me employed. And then in and out of the West End, Delphont and Grade were fantastic bosses because they were acts themselves. Mm. So there was sort of nothing you could, no, no little quirks you could play on them. They've been there and done it. And so I would back Lulu. I mean, anyone you care to name at the time. It was a wonderful experience, <coughs> excuse me, in and out of um, the Palladium Sunday concerts. And the, 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 my main job was to sort of sing. I had 18 girl dancers behind me, it was a, but somebody had to do it, you know. It's a tough gig. <laughs> and uh, and we'd be doing like Coca Cabana and all that stuff, you know, with all the feathers and all that sort of thing. 
And and the girls would say, why aren't you in the dressing room? Why aren't you with us? Because on the stage, on these Sunday concerts, I've been watching the greatest artists, you know, Victor Ball, uh, Sammy Davis Jr. I mean, the greatest acts and just wow. standing in the wings and have the privilege of, of watching uh, guys like that. And, and of course, all about you know, Desert Connor and well, anyone you care to name. And, yeah. and through my 12 years of doing of doing that, of doing, I, I went to repertory theatre then because I, I was in a load of John Hanson. There are names that you guys are going to have to look up on Wikipedia. But John Hanson, I'll tour with him and I'll be his understudy and all that sort of stuff. Uh, 12 musical, West End musicals I've done now. But uh, in my early career, it was fantastic because as I was going around the country, we had about six really regional theatres that did a lot of repertory theatre. And as I was going through with these big shows, I'd say to them, I know you're doing this musical. Uh, is there a chance that you might give me a, give me the opportunity to come and, and do a bit of acting? And they did, bless them. And so I went along and uh, had to uh, either Durbridge plays or Agatha Christie plays or just about anything, really. But uh, because I sang, it meant that I could stay for two or three months because I could do the plays either end of it and the musical in between. At the time, when it first started, it was weekly rep which was serious brain damage because we were doing a play a week. When, when you've rehearsed the first play and it was open on that Tuesday morning, you go and you start learning another one. So you've got two full plays in your head. And I have to tell you, Ollie, you used to walk out sometimes on the stage and you go, um, <laughs> yeah, <sorry. laughs> what line was it? <laughs> um, but it, 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 wow, what experience. And, uh, <clears throat> and again, uh, you very pointedly said about the research, because I didn't go to drama school, when I started getting those jobs, and I was singing uh, in, uh, now what was that, Calamity Jane in the evenings, and during the day we were doing a Chekhov play <laughs> for, sco for schools. I mean, you couldn't get further away. But uh, because I hadn't gone to drama school, I had to go to the reference libraries, so I'd be pulling out the, bo the, the books and, and referring back to the time and the history and the place. Uh, Jesus Christ Superstar I've done many times, and I went off and researched pilots and found out, you know, he was... Uh, really henpecked. It was his wife that was making him work and doing all those horrible things. And I mean, it's fascinating. And I love that research part of, of my job. And to be honest, once rehearsals are finished and you start to play, it all gets a bit boring <laughs> because, you know, you sort of found them. And, and of course, the, the, the great thing about theatre is that uh, no matter what the director says to you, once he's gone, the part's yours. And so there might have been something in rehearsal you wanted to try. And, and the fantastic thing was that you could give it a go and then you... You'd either realise, Ollie, how great you are. You realise, no, they're absolutely right. It's terrible. It doesn't work at all. But but it's great because your audience is coming in there to see. And, and you would. You know, I've, I've toured five plays at once, four Agatha Christie's in a Durbridge in, in the same theatre. So the audience would come and see you in two weeks, could see all five plays. I mean, it was serious brain damage. But wonderful, wonderful, wonderful experience. But you met your audience. Um, if you did the regional theatres, they'd ask you to go and get coffee and they'd give you a little bit of a of um, help with the payments and all that sort of stuff in there. So you didn't pay quite as much for the coffee. But the, your audience came and sat next to you and said, oh, what are you? Because you've got the lines. Oh, what are you learning this week? I mean, it, it was fantastic. And you also, because, you know, we're in digs. You get on the bus and you're on the bus queue and the lady, oh, I saw you last week in, in Murder at the Victory. Joel, you died beautifully. So, <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's great, you know, with your audience. That's what we're there for. It's about the audience. So, um the research, as I say, is great. Obviously, the, it depends what you're doing, but normally the words, and if you're doing, I don't know, White Christmas, as I've done Irving Berlin a couple of times and once at the Dominion in the West End, it's all there. It's, it's written for you. The character's so well-defined. And, of course, you know, you're going out at the Dominion, you're playing to 3,000 people. 
Uh, it, it's, it's stunning, you know. But theatre is where I belong. Theatre is where I love uh, because it's instantaneous. As, as we mentioned before, you know, you do these these pieces and you go out there in full confidence, you know, and of course it's suddenly the brain decides, don't want to know. And if you're doing a musical, the orchestra doesn't stop. You've got, you've got to catch them up somehow. Um, but again, you know, it's live and that's why your audiences come. They see this trench we dig <laughs> and we've got to get ourselves out of it. it it's, it's one, but you share that moment together. It, it's, a, it's a wonderful, wonderful. Um, I did Scrooge and that was wonderful being on stage, doing the scene. If you, you probably remember the piece, but he's, he's in the graveyard, but it's live and I'm in front of 800 kids from five and six in the front rows to 18, 19 at the back. And um, the piece is so beautiful. There's tears rolling down my face as he recalls his life and how stupid he's been. And you look at their faces, Ollie, and they're right with you. Tears are rolling down. I mean, there's nothing more magical than theatre. It's, it's extraordinary. Providing your audience come wanting to be with you. And, you know, we call it, we call it about being in the moment, but wanting to be there with you. It is stunning. And also, you know, you get the ones we'll go in the wings and we talk, have you seen that bloke in the third row? He's the most miserable thing I've ever seen. <laughs> I'm going to make him laugh if it's the last thing I do. So you have those moments, you know, pantos we've just come out of. Now you walk down there and the woman will be at the front with four kids and all you're talking about in the wings is what she's bought with her because every time you go out, there's another packet of crisps or a bag of sweets or something going up and down the line. You know, it's just wonderful. It's absolutely wonderful. So you go from this incredible introduction, you know, doing the pantos and the plays into TV. And one of the early parts that you played in nine episodes that you appeared in, quite another iconic British show, was Doctor Who. Yeah. So tell us about stepping into that arena suddenly in front of the camera. Well, the first thing I ever did in front of the camera was actually a Britvic commercial, if you remember that. There were a mix of drinks. <laughs> and I'd never sat in front of a, of a camera before. But what I learned there was sitting down while they were doing the lighting and all that stuff. You know, you just watch what the lighting guys are doing, watch what the sound guys are doing. Yeah. And um, what, what I then did when I was doing the refugee theatres, there was a couple of agencies that sort of did extra work. And I, and I said to them, but you're, you're a sort of trained actor. Why do you want to do this? So I went back to it. So I, I actually went. And I think drama school should do it for their drama students. And because you haven't got any responsibility as the actor, you've got to wander about whenever they want you to wander about. Um, and I did some massive movies, but only in, in the background uh, of them, big war movies. But if you're sensible, I always just got behind the camera crew. So I was watching them, listening to, to their conversations, listening to that ruddy actor, you know, <laughs> he doesn't get his words right, I'm going to go up there and smack him. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's all those wonderful, wonderful moments. But that's right, because... And the thing about my job is it's not just you at the front. You've got hundreds behind you that are just there. Their whole aim is to make you look and sound great. And But be aware of them. Be, that Without them, you, it ain't going to happen. And that's terribly, terribly important. So going into the Doctor Who's, my first, actually, experience was I, I went along there and was supposed to do these little bits on Doctor Who, and suddenly they sort of came up to me and said, you uh, the thing I said is that ASMs that you work with in theatre often go on to do TV, and that was the case when I walked in there. I knew half of the half of the crew there, um, and they said, "Oh, he's, he's great! You know, he's a trainer. You just do it." And the directors would come up and sort of, "Would you just say that?" Yeah, okay. And because of all, all that stuff in red, it never threw you. I mean, you just uh, whatever, you know. And you've got that ability to go again, you know, which you don't in, in theatre. So that kind of grew. And the BBC at the time, you sort of became a BBC player. 
And you go and do a bit of training downstairs in the studios they got downstairs with it. And they started bringing automatic cameras in, so you didn't have a cameraman, and it was very peculiar. But anyway, um, and what was great uh, for me with the Doctor Who's was I have a very warped sense of humour. So I was encased in rubber for the BBC far more times than I should have been. But, and when you're sitting there as a Cyberman or a Marshman or a Melker, I don't know which ones you're going to be talking about, um, you're absolutely encased in, in this costume. And, and I'm just sitting down on little stools. I've got an earpiece and a throat mic and you just sit there, you know, and it's like doing a radio play, like doing this <laughs> in a strange way, uh, because no one takes any notice of you. I think the Cybermen were, were, uh, were quite uh, scary. I think even the crew kept away from us. <laughs> and we weren't even real. But um, all those experiences. I then worked with Kenny Everett uh, wow. at, the, at the B. And, you know, at the, when the White City went, Ollie, oh, my heart broke because I walked in there first when I was 22. And you sit in those dressing rooms and you think, who sat there before you? Yeah. And there's like eight, eight studios think, or nine studios at the time. And you could wander around going in and out of the studios and see what's going on. I, it, it was fascinating. So when we were doing the Doctor Who's, I'd wander around the other studios, chat to people. As I say, Kenny Everett was great. Again, the producers there um, would uh, would come up to me and sort of go, um, we're sitting down having a coffee. You know, oh, Ken's got an idea. Would you knit in the Studio 7? Yeah, okay. And I literally would just go in there and say, can you say this, do this and do that? Yeah, okay. And just, just to, and so that your name sort of got got around a little bit. I mean, to be honest, I look at it, Ollie, the same way as if I call a plumber electrician, I don't want to know. All I want to know is how much and is it going to yeah. happen again? And I think... <laughs> I think that's the same for actors. You know, I call myself an actor, so therefore I'll do it. That, that's the job. I mean, Ken was amazing. If you look on YouTube, there's there's one there for Ken called The Bus Gag. And uh, they call themselves, we're actually going on location, which is very rare for me. And they took me to this old RAF, um, old ex-RAF building. And in there, they uh, built a bedroom set. And in the bed was Lulu. Now, I'm you, I got there on the night before, so it gave me an idea of what. In the bed was Lulu, and Kenny comes in a pinstripe suit. And says, I know you've got a lover here somewhere, and he starts hunting the room. I've got a lover here somewhere. And he opens the wardrobe, and I'm stood in the wardrobe. And he said, what are you doing in there? I'm waiting for a bus. And then a route master smashes through the wall about an in about 19 inches from my left shoulder, and I get on it, and it drives off. And that, wow. was, that was the sketch. But again, um, the, the guy said, we, we don't know many that will be able to stand there listening to a root master revving up and it not show on their face. <laughs> That's incredible. So you, get, you get those. But also for me, mate, I mean, that, that's, that's what, he was way ahead of his time, way, way ahead of his time. Again, like, if I may say, a lot of comics, multiple problems within himself. But again, I'd sit and chat to the guys I've always been into sort of mental health and, and that from being a kid I would always want to support the underdog I'd always want to support the one that the teachers always picked on and all that sort of stuff um, yeah and unfortunately you know I've never experienced anything like that I'm sort of loud and noisy and <laughs> so I've never really experienced anything uh, like that before but what an experience of the BBC and then when, when they took it up to Salford it just broke my heart because what you can't do is you can't create that history anywhere no. and it's the same when they got rid of Hendon and I'm not even a real copper and my daughter, who'd been with me many, many times there, actually cried. I mean, when, when they shut headed. I used to go there so lucky. I used to go there with whoever the commissioner was and stand there and uh, passing out parades and things and meet the families of all these young coppers. And without fail, Ollie, you know, really senior cops, commanders and stuff would come there. I was in room 133, you know, and that memory, you know, of being there. You, yeah. you can't build that. 
that that's that's something so special. You can't transplant that somewhere and expect the magic to happen. It, it just doesn't. Let Let's talk about now that you know we move into that policing role. You know, and I think I've got my numbers right here. 1984 to 2009, 292 episodes in the bill. Let's talk about that transition. Try 1,400 episodes. I was going to say, 292 seemed a bit <laughs> slim to me. I might have I done must... that in the first year and a half. <laughs> well, that's what I thought. I thought 292. I'm thinking that doesn't I told you, right. don't go on Wikipedia. Anyone can yeah. write any old nonsense on there. <laughs> that was on a Graham Cole sort of fan base site. Oh, well. Oh, was it? Oh, yeah. bless them. Yeah, well, let's really interesting fans. Let let, I'm sure you do. Let's talk about the casting of that role and the research that you did when the opportunity presented itself. Okay, we go back to Jesus Christ Superstar. Yeah, I'm not sure whether I was singing Pilot or Caiaphas because I've done both, and it might have been Caiaphas. And I was in Swansea, beautiful Swansea, and I'd done seven rep seasons and three pantos and stuff down there. And Phil Grace was directing us in that. And he came saying, you know, my real job is I'm a feature editor at Thames. Oh, okay. And they've just started this series called The Bill, and you'll be perfect for it. Why? Is it then? So it's a police series. I've never played a policeman. I've been doing this for 13 years. I've never played a policeman. What is it? I just know the concept that they've got for this show. I just know you'll be right. Here's, here's a contact number. It's Peter Bougie. Give him a ring, and which I did. And bless him, he saw me. And we chatted. It wasn't a, an interview or, or anything like that. And um, he, uh, Peter also worked at the BBC. So, I mean, obviously, he's got mates that he can talk to and stuff. And he said, well, I've got nothing for you now, but perhaps would you mind sort of coming in and maybe just wandering around wandering around a bit and, uh, you know, we'll pay you. So, I mean, that, that was, yeah, yeah, great. Pay some mortgage, yeah, great. That's right. Um, and, and, and bless him, you know, he was true to his word. I went in and sort of did quite a bit of wandering around. But the bill at the time except for those that were main cast to start with, that's how they actually recruited their actors. They'd either come in as a villain or somewhere in the background or a doctor or something like that. But mainly they bring you in, let you wander around. And at the time, the writers would then come up to you and say, oh, look, what do you think about this? How do you think about it? And of course, like I said, when, when you're kind of like an extra, you've got time to watch. And I was looking around watching what the other actors were doing. Uh, Again, my view has always been in the crews love me for it know what you're doing, come in, do it, and go home in the shortest space of time possible. It's always been my thing. I don't want to hang about. I don't... What's your motivation? Money. Yes. <laughs> money, <laughs> money and going home. <laughs> the rest of it I do at home. I mean, I think the people, you know, we're often likened to, to swans. They look graceful at the top, but under the water, panic is going on. Yeah. And that is acting. You know, we do, we do the work at home. We do the work you don't see, so we can come out and just uh, do the job. And so I was walking, looking at more them. On panning shots, whenever the camera was going past, I always made sure I was doing something slightly wrong. I mean, not massively, but like I'll be chewing. And I knew Eric Richard, who was playing his cryer at the time, would pick it up and just kind of look, give me a look, you know, and, it, and it's great. <laughs> um, or, or as they come in, I'll pick up a little bit and spit something in the bin and put it down. Yeah, I mean, it's just that kind of thing. Um, picking, a, picking a pen up, you know, and, and having a drink, and you're not supposed to do that in the cab rooms, are you? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, just stuff like that. And then... Um, they came up and they said, look, we, we know the bill is going to get bigger than it is. So people mm-hmm. won't remember, but they used to make t- about 10 episodes a year going out on a Friday night. It's going to, ITV is going to pick up. It's going to become really big. And what we want to do is, we, we know you can drive cars. Now, I've raced cars. Or I started with go-karts at Rye House when I was 
12, 11, 12. I loved it. Uh, I've had a racing license for over 50 years, so I do love motor cars and, and driving very fast. Um, so they said, oh, well, what we want you to do is we just want you to go out with the film crew. We want to see whether it's even feasible. No one in the world has done it to actually make a television show on the streets of London with all the problems of doing that. So um, they gave me this little police car. We went up into sort of multi-story car parks and I was whizzing down there to see where, how the iris of the camera would work. We'd go in light, 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 light. The lighting guys would be testing stuff. They'd be trying little microphones, little mini cameras. I mean, all sorts of things. It was wonderful working with the crew and realising what their problems were. But of course, while we were doing that, I was making up dialogue because there wasn't any. So, and quite a lot of it would be untransmittable. <laughs> Just, but, but it was for the crew and for the producers when they when they got back. Um, and we were running up stairwells and things, you know, but all on location. The one thing about the village, it was a location-based program. Yeah. Uh, and the guys were sort of saying about, well, how fast do you want to go? And we said, well, how good are you? And watch this. You know, and, and I'd, I'd like, the 380s on the handbrake and all that sort of stuff, you know, because it's, it's racing techniques, you know, it's nothing kind of special. But but I do, if you're going to do something, I want to do it properly. And I and I went off to Silverstone, you know, and every, and every year you'd have to redo your relicence. Well, not every year, but as you got older, you certainly would. And I was still chucking cars around when I was in my 40s. You have to go twice a year then, in case you had a heart attack or something. I never quite understood why it was twice a year, but there you go. <laughs> um, so it was great. And um, the camera crews were going back to the producers, just going, you know, this, this kid is just like, that's it. It's, it's not complicated, you know. Um, and then they said about playing uh, Tony Stamp. Well, I've done a little bit of, of research, obviously. And I used to uh, chat to a, a copper that used to wander around Bromley, uh, where we're living in South London, uh, PC Rickard, and um, he had this ability. We talk to kids. You then see him sitting on the wall by Barclays, talk to teenagers. He just had this great ability. And uh, when I started to do uh, some more research, uh, I went to the old Nick at Bromley and chatted away, and there he was in the canteen. And I went, I said, Do you mind if I sit here? Pete Rickard. He was very reserved. There's a lot of guys that are really good at their job are, and, and was very modest. But I chatted to him. I didn't find out until many years later that he was actually a trained negotiator that met used different sorts of, uh, of reasons. I think at one point, because it went on for so long, it was part of the Balkan Street siege as well. I mean, it, it just that wonderful ability to just sit there and chat. And it was guys like that. And, and what inspired me more for Tony than anything else was the public don't meet CID officers unless you're in trouble <laughs> of some sort. You meet the uniform cops, that's who you see on the street or, or wherever it is, or the guys that stop you. I mean, we had traffic at the time, didn't we? Those are the guys. And, and that's what I said. I want to be PC Rickard. I want like the guy that knows what he's doing and just does it, but loves doing it. He's there because he wants to be there. And and in my years, as, as the bill then progressed, um, we had lots and lots of advisors. One was Wolf Knight, our first, and he was a bit of a flamboyant character, but had wonderful contacts. And in my uh, 25 years on that show, I went out with the area cars, just sat in the back seat of the area cars almost from day one, because they, well, if, they made Tony Stamp this profile, you know, he's car expert, gun expert, judo. I mean, it's like flipping egg boys. Yeah, okay, yeah, great. Robocop. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but I mean, all that meant research. Uh, at the time, it was Hounslow, so I went to Hounslow off my own back. And uh, and over there, the guys were wonderful to me. 
um, we still had the handcuffs, the ordinary handcuffs, but we were the first on the quick cuffs and stuff like that because they were just mm. introducing them. Um, of course, we started off with the truncheon down the trouser leg. It was the most uncomfortable thing to drive a car with in, in the world. Um, uh, but I learned that Hendon, you know, the, the real boys that have been there a long time used to take out, this is only for policemen, used to take out the leather strap, put it in the top of their belt so that they could get it out quickly. Uh, and, you know, you just learn to just be with the guys. You just learn that side handle buttons. I mean, all through, all of that stuff. Um, and very special to be able to do that. Uh, sitting with the area car was a massive experience. You, obviously, I had to sign indemnity forms, which I never told the wife about. But uh, if anything happened, <laughs> we couldn't sue the Met. Uh, the briefings were wonderful because they'd introduced me. I mean, obviously, once the bill was up and running, they knew where I was. It got a lot easier. But when I first started, I got a little bit of what the hell are they, what the hell are they doing here? You know, what's the point and all that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, but just sitting down with the guys, having a cup of tea after certain incidents, watching how they then got into kilter for going on again. I think it's one of the biggest things the public don't realise is they've probably just come from something pretty horrible or been bellowed out or something, and you just got to get rid of all that and start again with the next, the next one that comes in. Admittedly, at the time, uh, the crews that are coming in, so I'm still out with the guys here in, in Norfolk, weren't having 40 calls that they couldn't get to before they even start. You know, yeah. So you've got all that aggression of people sitting for two or three hours waiting for you. And we didn't have that at the time, you know, and uh, sort of an area car driver was God. Uh, you know, he would sit there and go, uh, if the main set went off, you ever take that one? Yeah, well, we've got a local one. No, no, no. <laughs> and, and I learned in the canteen, you'd go into the canteen and the old senior sweats would put the keys over the aerial of their, of their radio. So everybody knew who they were and what they were. <laughs> I mean, it was just those little moments. But what happened then as the build progressed was sort of, uh, you'd see in the, in the script, you know, give stamp look. <laughs> or... Or the director would go, you know, what would you really do? Um, and when they did This Is Your Life, Andy Paul made a wonderful play Quinn and he made a wonderful comedy. He did lots and lots of episodes again. He's like the the fifth advisor <laughs> on the show. But it wasn't that because really, honestly, Ollie, it was just for my character. I won't tell anybody else how they should or shouldn't behave. It was just for me. And one of the overriding things, which I really, really hope happened, was I wanted to put a heart inside the uniform. Mm that it's not as black and white and as easy as, as, as perhaps you think it is. And I was, I was well blessed with writers um, as it went on. Uh, I was told much later on, you know, four out of five scripts would feature stamp <laughs> that, they were getting, that they were getting through. And I mean, that's, that's, that's really humbling and, uh, and, and wonderful. Pick up a script, mate, you know, and it's written for your characters. It's such a high. Because the, the, the role of PC Tony Stamp was in essence, that character or the, the, the police officer that you talk about at Bromley, he was Mr. Consistent. You know, if there was ever a, a, a turbulent time at Sun Hill, he, he would bring this level of calm to a situation and reassurance as that kind of mature senior guy, you know, who's got this prestigious role as the area car driver. Because back in the 90s, I was very lucky when I had this real love for policing and wanted to get to know more about it. I was very lucky to go out in the area car, Zulu 7 in Croydon's patch. And I remember when we go into the canteen, as you recall, everybody kind of looked at the area car driver as this godlike figure. Here is, <laughs> this is the this is the chap that we all want to be like. And it was fascinating. And that really shone through in your character. So the research that you've done as to kind of the aspiration of people wanting 
to be in that role, which I think in latter years moved on to more firearms type roles. I think it kind of evolved a little bit in terms of how policing has evolved, how quite cleverly that move to cross was, 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 was fascinating. And I want to talk about a few episodes that you were, were, were scripted in, in terms of some of the challenges that police officers face, because the podcast is talking about ordinary people doing extraordinary work and the challenges they face. And obviously the idea of the bill was to try and replicate that as best they possibly could across these episodes. So let's go down memory lane and let's talk about a couple of these episodes and what they meant to you. So, so oh, the first Lord, one, how far are you going back, mate? Well, the, 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 the first one is, is quite a, a serious topic. And I think it's a, quite relevant to today because policing certainly is at a crossroads at the moment there's a lot of challenges i don't there's no denying that at all but so 2002 tony is the subject of an accusation of sexual harassment from lee dwyer the allegations are false but the longevity of the investigation and the public's reaction to the possibility leaves tony reeling it also damages his unbroken friendship with Jim Carver. So, you know, such a serious storyline, something which is very relatable, I think, to today in terms of allegations of misconduct. And, you know, so how did you immerse yourself into that representation of that scenario? Well, first of all, we're very fortunate in that if if it's going to be a long-running storyline, the producers will give you sort of plenty of heads up on it. Yeah. Hmm. And um, cleverly written, Lee Dry was a boy. Cleverly written. Yeah. Uh, Tony was running uh, Boys Football Club. So over six episodes, you kept seeing this little boy turning up, or teenager, uh, kept turning up. And it's beautifully written, Ollie, beautifully written. When the accusations come, your audience have been with Tony and that boy on all of the instances that he relates back to. I thought you promised me you wouldn't get into any more trouble, eh? Those other boys, they made me go into the shop with them. Well, choose your friends more carefully in future. Get yourself off only. Such clever writing. Yeah, and I was so, I yeah. was getting comments in the street and, and people writing to me, we saw it wasn't that way. And that's exactly what you want from a television programme. Yeah. But yeah, it was massive. And again, you know, with, with, with Trudy Goodwin, you know, he's like, uh, I think there was a line in there somewhere that I'm, I'm guilty until proven innocent, aren't I? Mm. Uh, it's, to talk to your colleagues in that way was, was massive. And of course, we, they wrote quite a lot of, of interaction between Stamp and CID. I mean, um, what did he call them? The brains department, I think. That's <laughs> it was right. This, it was this terrible phrase that they wrote for me. I didn't, I didn't make that up. Um, so he had this thing. And also there was one or two episodes where he goes, you know, we well, only go in a suit so so you can't be traced. Because obviously, you know, you've you got your shoulder number. So whatever yeah. you say or do, you're instantly, you're, well, what did he look like? I don't know, <laughs> young and in a suit, you know. So that all that sort of was relevant. But the Leeds Wire stuff is very clever. Um, I've been with Childline for quite a long time. I joined when I when I first joined the bill. So Esther Anson had only just started that charity. And uh, so I was aware, I've been on the phones and, and talking to kids and that sort of stuff. And I spoke to ITV and bless them, uh, after each of those episodes, they actually put out Childline's number. It would have cost us thousands of pounds <laughs> to do that, but they did. So if you're in the, that was very, it wasn't quite as much as it is happens now, but if you've been affected by it. So that was wonderful. Uh, the young lad that played him was terrific. <coughs> Excuse me. And, uh, you know, his dad comes into the station and pins stamp up against the wall, you know, and there's one or two of the colleagues looking grinning. And all that stuff and and it's so important to show you you're on your own i got letters yes from police officers but from school teachers from sports organizers going 
been there, been accused. How the hell do you, you know, uh, yeah, you're in the changing rooms with the kids and all that sort of stuff. It, I mean, it's, it, it was pretty horrendous. I do have to say that while I was shooting those, I think it was six episodes or something like that, six, seven episodes, I was still shooting other episodes. Yeah. So again, my days in rep came into work because you had to keep flipping from, you know, I'm in this storyline now and I'm doing this and I'm doing that. And that's going to do a lead wire and all that sort of stuff. Or this has got a relevance. It's going to come back up in a few um, episodes times. And I can remember driving back. Um, we had three bases during the build. We started down Artichoke Hill by Tower Bridge, which I loved yep. that. That was beautiful. There. We then moved to um, Bulby Road uh, near the uh, of Scrubs. We then finally went to Mitchell. It was in Mitchell where we were shooting this stuff. And I remember driving home to Bromley and I just had to go into a, um, a pub car park and just cry. Wow. Because I'd held those emotions for such a long time. And uh, and you have to do one of the things I would say to people, you know, and I do my kind of one man show and I talk about it is when you're on stage, it's a little bit different. We use all our, our whole bodies. When when it's TV, it's smaller. When it's film, it's even smaller. It's about your eyes on you. And the only way you get your eyes and the truth in your eyes is to actually be in that moment, to take your audience with you. Because as we are doing, we're looking in each other's eyes and you're doing a conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what you do in, in the screen. There's something naughty that I used to do in the bill and the producer used to go, well, you got away with it, was uh, you can't see my eyes, but if the camera's looking straight at me, I would start his head over the right and I'll flip through the lens and then go left. And just as I pass the lens, I would just roll my eyes and it's just for the audience. Like, what would you wow. do? Yeah. <laughs> if you were it's, me, what would you do? It's, it's so clever because the importance of the, it's not just a TV drama series in the sense of it comes on our screens, we watch it on a Friday night, you know, we get some enjoyment, we wait till next week. It takes us on a journey of really important subjects. Mm-hmm. And it gives us, you know, as you say, like the audience had so much context around your relationship with this young man in the football environment that they kind of understood that, you know, the, the challenges that you were facing. Yeah. So everybody's going on this emotional roller coaster with you. Mm-hmm week on week out and just on the edge of their seats waiting to see how yeah. it all pans out for pc tony stamp sierra sierra oscar 595 you know it's, you that, yeah. it's uh of course it's, you, it's, you also had carver you know going yeah. well he's not married is he yeah you know you have all that stuff going off in the background it's, it's yeah uh, it's it's pretty important i mean I, I met cherry in 1974 when i was a red coat so we've been together uh ever since 40 48 years 49 years or something now but yeah. um, the thing is that they never made him married. And I was so pleased. They, they were, when there was a beach story, they were thinking they were going to get him married off. And I said, well, how can you marry him now? The audience know he isn't. You can't just do it for one storyline. But yeah. the point of this is I love the fact that he wasn't married because I played someone that did look at ladies' bums as they walked past him <laughs> in the street. And, you know, and he was very grateful, you know, and with the ladies giving him a kiss and a hug and stuff. And it was very clear that he wasn't. Seriously, after some of those big storylines, when he was trying to date to Tr- uh, Trudy Goodwin, sorry, at Ackland, and she slapped him. The next day I was with Cherry and we were in Mark's Spencer's or somewhere shopping. And the third woman to come up and give me a hug, Cherry just said, I'll see you in the car in 20 minutes. <laughs> yes, so, but again, Ollie, you know, that's your audience, isn't it? That's why you're there. Uh, and it was very special, and, and particularly for those that were going through that at the time. I, certainly the girls and the boys that allowed me to sit in the area cars with them. And remember, in those days when I was going out, uh, dare I mention it, the IRA was still about and still mm. doing their thing in the city. You know, yeah. and I was out in the city police. Um, being with them, you want to portray 
what it's like. You know, it's a bit like a bit like the royal family. You know, I've met them all very fortunately. They're not what you think they are. <laughs> we're, no. we're all we're all function the same. Yeah. And this idea that because you put a uniform on, you know, you've got supreme strength or you can take all the criticisms or you can be doing something on the street and people yelling at you. You know, I get with the area car boys. Why is this person walking so slowly across the zebra crossing when you've got blues and twos on? You know, <laughs> because they can, you. Yeah. you know, what is that? You know, and I want to wind down a window and sort of go, you know, we could be going to your mum. Mm. Yeah, there's some of the frustrations. Yeah. Let's let let's talk. Actually, you know, you talk about uh, Sergeant June Ackland. Let's talk about an incident with her, which involved your driving. You know, you as the as 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 the man behind the wheels of a, of an area car. So, 2004, whilst on patrol with June, the pair were involved in a chase of a vehicle. June went to chase the decamped suspects on foot, and when she came out from behind an alleyway. June ended up being hit by the area car Tony was controlling. June ended up in cardiac arrest and lost her spleen. Now, here's a character that Tony had a great level of admiration for, respect, and, had, you know, as you say, you had obviously you hit on her at one point and it resulted in a bit of a slap. But here's an instant where you're involved in your driving, you've hit another, you've hit another one of your colleagues. A big, big moment in, a, in terms huge. of the show. Huge yeah, moment. Huge. And, and of course, you know, not, not of course, because of the, the racing skills, uh, I should have mentioned that uh, I went to Hendon uh, and they were wonderful to me. Inspector Baggs was in charge at the time. I actually did that driving course at Hendon about eight times in my 25 years, just so I could go on the streets with the blues and stuff on, you know, and, and do what the boys did. I think kind of my reputation grew a little because I went with the guys and the girls to do it. Yeah. Um, and open days at Hendon, I used to go there and uh, they used to like the fact of chucking me onto the skid pan, which I never got any better at. <laughs> um, but yeah. And, and of course, you know, that's his pride and joy. The area car was his number one. That, that was, yeah. as you, I, I could use your phrase, you know, he was the God. Um, and when you first hear that you're going to, you know, you read, and you think, oh, blimey. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, couldn't it be anybody else you know yeah. um, but of course it had to be her you're quite right because that, that's the drama of it all um and i apologize to all television watchers from evermore because our writers did the um the research and apparently you can lose your spleen but carry on a normal life and every now yeah. and again you, you see something on there a casualty or something like that and you go, well he's losing his spleen but yeah we start <laughs> you wouldn't know that <laughs> we hadn't done that storyline um and in actual fact um, boringly, but you just take my mind back to it. That is the only time we had a a female stunt artist that, that doubled for Trudy. Obviously, she had to go over the bottom of the car, and that's the only time I did not do the stunt. Is that the, the the stunt woman wanted a stunt driver, not me, to be driving? That was the only time that Tony Stamp was not driving the area car uh, during the rest of all those fourteen hundred episodes. It was me doing it. So it meant because wow. the build. The bill was one handheld camera. I don't know if you know that. So they wanted that drama no. documentary feel. Yeah. So what it meant was that it didn't matter where the director put the camera. It was actually me driving the car. So it was, uh, say, hours and hours and, you know, stunt personnel and all that sort of thing. But, uh, yeah, that storyline was massive. Uh, we, uh, you got my mind going. I remember when I had that kissing scene with Trudy. <laughs> we, we were on different episodes that morning and I, I went in there. I, I mainly used to check us, make sure our hair was sort of the same. Length, and we had no makeup or anything, but obviously the girls did. And as I went in, her eyes caught mine in the mirror and she just went, oh, God. <laughs> I went up to her and, uh, and pulled her head back and gave her the sloppiest, horriblest kiss that I could imagine any mother wanted at 7 o'clock in the morning. 
and said, I, I promise you it would be better tonight. <laughs> <laughs> but then we went off and did our separate episodes, and then we met up, and there's, there's this huge pub in, uh, pub in Sutton. And we arrived there, and the crew's all there and stuff, you know. And we'd all had long days, so they just want to get this over with. And they said, okay, we're going to go out. So we, we had dialogue in the pub, and then go outside. And uh, the most romantic thing is, because you've got 40 odd crew looking at you, we're looking yeah, at their watches yeah. saying, please, let's just go home and get this over with. And Trudy and I sort of look at each other and go, okay, we just, we knew each other very well. I mean, it was like kissing your sister, to be honest. But you know, we knew each other very well. We're both professional. And one of the things about the people don't realize on kissing scenes is you have a key light in your eyes, she has a key light in her eyes, and you don't want to shadow each other. I mean, it is, gets really complicated oh. to actually do it. Um, but uh, where do they stage it? Outside the gents' toilets, just above us, there's <laughs> the windows to the gents' toilets. So every now and again, you hear, <laughs> but no, that's the romance of what we do for a living. But truly, Goodwin, I've got such respect for Trudy. Wow, what an actress! Uh, she yeah. was amazing. And um, and as you say, we, we had many, many episodes and great laughs. I mean, it's quite unusual for a sergeant to come out uh, in the area car, so that was a storyline. That we were doing there of not having enough personnel and so even in those wow. days you know we, we were covering it i mean uh, up here you know they're, they're single man quite often in, in norfolk and uh it's just not enough of you <laughs> i mean it just isn't no. it, it's, it's crazy and they obviously they used to do a sort of that puppy walking thing didn't i don't know if they still call that now you know but the young cops coming in and they used to sit sitting in the area in the back of the area car and all that sort of stuff and go out with them and uh and I love that sitting in the back there and just chatting to these youngsters, you know. And Hendon, you see as well, uh, they do the passing out parade Saturday, get their papers, and on Monday they're on the streets. I know, yeah. <sighs> been, been, been there. You know, I, in fact, I graduated uh, on the Wednesday, and on Friday I had a chap trying to run me. This is in Adelaide, back in Australia. On the on the, on the Wednesday I'd graduated, and on the Friday some chap decided to try and attack me with a crowbar in a road rage incident. And I'd made my first rest and had no idea what I was doing. I was absolutely wow. terrified, you know. Yeah. So it can happen that quickly, you absolutely. know. Absolutely, yeah. it's madness. But um... and, and also at the time, which is different now. I'm, I'm sorry to say, but you know the the WPCs as they were then called. Mm. The chances are no one's going now. They hit the girls as regularly as they hit the guys. They don't even think about it anymore, do they? And, and I no. can't, I can't bear a woman being hit in any circumstance. But no. that I just find abhorrent. I, I don't understand that at all. I, I guess they just see the uniform, do they? I don't know. One of the great things I think the bill has done over its many years, um, and sadly it's over. I suppose one day, I suppose we'll hope it may come back, but. It was so good at representing the different demographics in society. You know, ultimately, it demonstrated that it showed the communities that it was policing. It had representation. We talk about people with you know, homosexuality. We talk about females in policing. We talk about people from ethnic backgrounds. It covered all mm. those demographics, which are so critically important in getting that message across of, Absolutely. you know, this is a this is an accurate representation of what yeah. the Met is like. Yeah. And that's really important, I assume. Yeah. And of course, you know, we had some of the first black actors ever having their television experiences with us. I can't remember the exact figures. I think it was like 40 odd thousand guest artists have been through the bill um, wow. when I left it. But I mean, if you imagine it, there's there was three units with, with their own villains and, and witnesses and all that sort of stuff. Um, yeah. But also, of course, not only do we have black police officers, but a lot of the young guys that I that I work with. Um, is their first and only chance to see them around, you know, and never ever did they get another TV role. I think it was massive 
in our industry and also for crews. You know, um, we used to get letters and, and the guys go, oh, I'm, I'm a Steadicam operator. You know, I'd like to work the bill and go, well, we've never used Steadicam <laughs> at any time because we can't. We're running out. Our location managers would find the fantastic locations that we're in. And like you said, you know, we're going to a house. Our uh, creative boys would have been in before us um, doing the props and stuff. But as, as we went in with the camera, just like you guys and girls would have to do, There'll be little clues as to what these people are like. There's a load of crap up the stairs and, you know, and, and piles of washing up and all that sort of stuff. And all that would, that would happen as we went through the doors. And so what do they used to say? Do you get there and then the last eight feet slow up? Just take yes. it all in. See, see what you've got coming ahead of you, you know. Absorb it, absorb it. So let, let's, let's move to the latter part of your career, which I think arguably ended quite rapidly for you. And... Um, was I assume probably a difficult part of that whole transition because it came without real warning and quite unexpectedly. Well, of course, one of the fortunate things uh, in my life is that I, I work with young people, and that's always a constant joy for me. Mm. Uh, the youngsters coming in all the time, whether it be crew or actors uh, around you, I like doing uh, talks to, to uh, drama students and schools and stuff. Um, so having the youngsters around you is great. Bear in mind, <clears throat> I had my 30th, 40th, and 50th birthdays. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I was on that show. <clears throat> and the cakes got bigger and bigger. And but, the ca <laughs> candles got more expensive. <laughs> <laughs> but it was, uh, it was a joy. And believe it or not, I, I've mentioned a few times to, to the writers uh, or our script editors, about Snap becoming a sergeant. Yes, I was going to ask that question. Um, yeah, because, I mean, not only... not only There was an awful lot of running involved with touching Snap. <laughs> and admittedly, <laughs> when I started, we were in a tunic. And then we went through yeah. all those derivations that you boys did with belts and bits of kit and stab vests and God knows what else. And of course, we were seven or eight months ahead of you guys getting it actually on the streets. So yeah. it was all secret, you know, and all that sort of stuff. In fact, I, I used to go out and... and Many police officers would come up to me and go, what are we getting next? <laughs> it was, it was a, a great time. Uh, and I asked about that sergeant thing, and particularly when they decided that they, the Alex Swarpingshaw, the Smithy character, they'd make yeah. him a sergeant and then they'd make him an inspector. And I thought that's a great opportunity to have maybe, to recalling back to what you said, have an old, an old head just coming up to him saying, I'm not too sure it's a good idea, Gov. Well, it was the Bob uh, Cryer. It was the Bob Cryer character when you first joined. The you know, yeah. I never saw Bob Cryer in a foot chase. You know, it was always he was a sergeant. If you crossed him, you were finished. You yeah. know, it was just yeah. this real yeah. stalwart of a well, skipper. Of course, the thing and, we used to do yeah. in the mornings, Ollie, is we get there and go, "I've got this chase." So, uh, how many shots go? And if the director goes, "Oh, probably about six. That means I'm doing that run six times. Wow. And, and I used to go to Hendon and do the driving course, and I'd go back and go, well, why have you come back here? We tell you, if you're not close enough to hit him in the door when you open it, you ain't close enough. <laughs> but <laughs> they would always make me stop the other side of the road to make it look more dramatic to run down the road and all that. But, you know, it's not easy getting out of an area car with the um, seatbelt and the, the gear yeah. and, the, and the, the long angle battens and all that stuff. And, of course, we always had to put our hats on because we had to be politically correct. And I'm yeah. going, well, every time I go over the guys... <laughs> so last thing, because you go to a pub brawl, that's the first thing that goes. Yes, <laughs> it is. Or if you've got if you've got the the helmet on, that's the first thing. First thing as soon as you run, 
<laughs> but again, I've been out with the guys, and, and a wonderful story. Sergeant, I met many, many times out in Wilston, where I live, when I did some research with guys. And uh, he won a commendation. He was one of those that chased that guy with the machete and sliced all his hands up while he's getting the machete off, off of the guy. Uh, but he won this Queen's uh, commendation and uh, saw him afterwards. And uh, I had his award ceremony and chatted to him. And he said, well, you're absolutely right. You keep going about this hat. He said, because uh, I had to borrow a cap. I don't even have one. <laughs> so, <laughs> 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 oh, yeah, that's the reason. But, um, yeah, you're right. It, it was pretty tough uh, when it came. It, and it came out of the blue, I have to say, other than we knew that, well, the bill changed many, many times. And they often use my character to, to make the transition. But, you know, they're going, oh, we need to go young, sexy, and then juice me well. I've never been young and I've never been sexy, so I knew my character was, and, and that's exactly what they did. And uh, it was sad to go in that way. And also they kind of didn't give me an episode. They, 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 they rewrote one that they had and, you know, went off to, to teach coppers to drive in Hendon. There's a post coming up at Hendon, Vance driving instructor. What are you telling me for? You're not thinking of applying here? Yeah? I already have. Hang on, Tom, you can't. And I've got it. it. But uh, it was pretty tough. That, that last day was pretty awful. And after I filmed the last scene with Alex, uh, Smithy, I went into the canteen, you know, and everyone from the offices and everyone was there and, oh, blimey, it was, it was tough. Uh, it's been a great honor playing Tony Stamp. I've loved him. And hopefully, you never know, he might turn up again at Sunday. Who knows? I don't know. Well, thank you guys, seriously. Good luck, kind of a synergy with policing a little bit in the sense of we do something for so long that we it becomes a family it's not it's not a career it's a lifestyle that you kind of live around and albeit in policing we know when that's coming to an end you know in terms of 30 years some people slightly longer if they get to commission ranks but then it goes and you have this big void which that you mm. want to try and fill not only for financial stability but sure. for your own personal you know satisfaction in terms of what you're doing with life but importantly with your exit from the bill you had this incredible charity work that you were doing in the background which has been so important for you around your life as you've spoken about going way back which was ultimately what led to you being the recipient of the OBE which is an incredible honour. Talk That must have been a very proud day for you, Cherie, and the entire family. Uh, I know it was amazing. It comes in, a, it comes in a brown envelope, and I've been out somewhere or another, and when I come in, Cherie says, you've got another speeding fine. <laughs> <laughs> and I opened up the envelope, and it's from the Prime Minister's, the Queen would be there. It's huge. Uh, I've met um, uh, now King, at the time, yes. obviously, Prince, I met him many, many times doing scouting and, and that sort of thing. Yeah. And uh, I had all my regalia on and a you know, frock coat and all that stuff. And as I walked up to him, he said, well, you clean up rather well, don't you? Because the last time I saw him, I was covered in mud because we've <laughs> done this rope bridge thing. Um, lovely, lovely man and, and, and really genuine. Uh, but what a huge honour. You do question it, Ollie, to be honest. And, and in the end, I thought, you know, what this will do for, and this might sound a bit, uh, but it opens doors for the charity stuff. Yeah. Uh, I get I get to see people and chat to people because it does it does open the doors for you. So it's especially in that way um, for kids in particular, for Childline in particular. You know, I had a great 
childhood. And I was fortunate enough to meet your mum and dad and go up the, into your home when we were in Australia uh, mm. doing doing the tour for the bill. Uh, and, you know, you come from a stable home. What you've experienced and what police experience, particularly the child protection teams, it, it's it's huge. And if I can support that, and you're absolutely right, I think the, the many, many guys that I've met that retired, you know, you've got to do something, boys and girls. You've got to film. You've got to keep, if you don't keep busy, I mean, I'm very lucky. The phone still rings. I do the one-man show and that sort of stuff. So, so you keep active and keep the brain going. You can't shut off and do nothing. Uh, I thought one of the things that maybe uh, with Stamp, you know, you could go, you go back there, don't they? And they sort of do cold cases, you know, and I said about so perhaps doing that. Uh, but that didn't want to know. They, want to cut, they wanted to cut the title from that character completely. We want it new. We want it different. We want, to, you know, and um, and you do say in there, you know, look, uh, about the audience, you know, I've got a good audience out there. And certainly what the producers in there don't, don't know is they don't walk the streets with us. They don't go into the shopping centres. They don't have the people continually coming up to you. And still, even today, yesterday, when you're out asking for selfies and stuff, you know, I mean, when the show's been off 10 years, close to close to 10 years, um, it's, it is extraordinary. But, um, wow, what a, what a privileged life I've led. And, you know, into post-traumatic stress, 999, uh, which we started with dear old Gary Hayes four years ago. That's very special just for the Blue Lighters. Uh, that's very special for me. Um, one of the reasons I said yes to you, you, you actually very kind in your introduction and when we spoke a couple of months ago, uh, said about the influence, you know, watching it. Uh, that's hugely humbling for an actor. But also you want to give back. Yeah. Because I was so lucky enough to get out there and do it. And, and Tony Stamp is the result of all those that let me sit beside him and ask stupid questions um, and, and just watch it for real. And people saying, yeah, would you like to be in a copper? No, I like being an actor. I've never wanted uh, to be that. I mean, my daughter did. My son actually got a law degree, uh, did as well. So it's it's quite interesting. I mean, neither of them have as yet. Um, but, oh, man, what a legacy. I, I, it's so, so lucky and so humbling. Well, you talk about this giving back, and, you know, I think it, it, that time in the bill, you're giving back the entire time because I think what it gives police officers is an ability to get a messaging out to the public that there is all these challenges in policing that I don't think they're ordinarily aware of because what the camera allows you to do and what the show allows to do is to actually get behind the emotions and the feelings of the people. Sure. Whereas the little, the limited interaction the public have with police officers, you know, obviously some have more interaction than others and generally not for a good reason. But for those of us that have that limited interaction, we actually don't know the people behind the uniform and the emotions and the journeys that they go through, mm. which was a lived experience of Tony Stamp through the bill. So it's when, very, when very important. About, when you think about the, um, the casting of it, beautifully cast all the way through. We had wonderful people, no egos. We didn't have any, we, we didn't have, Apart from anything, she didn't have time for egos, to be honest. But the things they covered, you know, you, you mentioned guns. I mean, when Stan, uh, when I joined, he was, I don't know why they call them pink card carriers, because it has all sorts of connotations today. But, <laughs> but um, they were, they were pink card carriers. So he, he'd be in Sierra Run, he'd get the call, he'd go into the, to the station. As he did, I went out with the guys many times to do it for real. And you sign a gun out. You know, the, the inspector's there, you sign a gun out, you strap it on and out, you go. Uh, and it was amazing. And again, at Lippitz Hill, I've been out with the uh, SO, uh, well, 19. I don't think they are anymore. I think they call something else now, but the gun boys, that's what they were uh, when I was researching them. India 99, you know, the helicopter. I've been so lucky, man. 
so so lucky and uh, but yeah i think it, it most things carry a responsibility i don't know about you and this is a terrible thing but there's very little television that i watch now because it is incredibly depressing because it is all death murder and mayhem and there's nothing funny and if you think about the bill you know the hollis character the stamp character we've got such great lines i mean they flip into my head instantly called back to a, a call that tony stamped about three or four times that evening which is happens isn't it uh he goes back because they've got these uh people with all sorts of disabilities uh now in the care of the community and of course stamp goes well the problem is the community doesn't care but he goes back over and over again and this guy and he's a very short guy they cast agitator all the time stamp eventually splatters him up against the wall which of course is totally wrong splatters him against the wall and just goes now look firstly you're a structural police officer in the course of his duty. Secondly, why don't you pick on your own side, if that's biologically possible? I mean, to just get, just get lines like that is just beautiful. And you want to go out and you want to play it. You know, it's and, it's, and it's so true what you say, because you do look at modern day television, and you think it is all about trauma, whereas you, as you quite, you know, as you, as, you, as you put it, you know, the Reg Hollis character was this kind of, interesting bubbly but often confused individual that was often guided by his colleagues through very difficult situations you know and it's and it's sad not to see that i suppose the question i have is do you think you know i don't think you should ever say never but do you think the bill will ever make a resurgence or has it done its time i think to to quote you i think policing has changed so much You've all got the body cams and that stuff, which you'd have to introduce to it. And it's very difficult to cut from body cam into main cameras and all that sort of stuff, which we, we actually pioneered. I mean, those car shots we did on the bill was all pioneered. Never, ever, ever had been done on the streets of a major city of the world before. I mean, it was amazing. I'm, I'm driving down the roads delivering dialogue, having white van man heading towards me the same as you guys did. Only we're pretending. <laughs> it was nuts. But pioneering, certainly the bill was. TV history, certainly the bill was. But no, policing, I think, has moved on. I think it'd be very difficult. Yeah, we reflected all of that um, that stuff. I, and, you know, what, what you're reading now, I mean, obviously, I come from a slightly different place to many, about the police officers. And they go, all these police officers, because of these allegations that are being made. Well, not allegations. I mean, it's now a case, isn't it? But you actually think, well, my mind always goes back to, like, Shipman, you know. Well, you don't brand all the doctors with, in, in, in the same rush. You know, why the hell would... And, of course, it's it's impossible. What, what's the Met 45 thousand or something is it in the, in Correct, the Met? Yeah. Yeah, something, something like that stuff. you know of course you and also if you're in that world you're covering up you know you know you know the best way to cover up you know the best way to and also i think again and again and again the, the same with, with childline when we're talking to those kids you know it's is there anyone you can talk to is there any ways a teacher you like is it you know these women was there no one they felt that they could actually confide in and talk to I mean, not necessarily in the police, but outside the police. And there's so many organisations. To, to sort of highlight what you just said, Ollie, uh, I was doing some award ceremonies from a, um, for a woman, and one of the awards we gave out was for sanctuaries, where they, they build these places for the women to be able to go to if they've been battered and stuff. And, uh, and I handed her, and she got the mic and said, you know, part of the problem we have is your industry. Oh, really? And she said, yeah, well, if you think about it, uh, on your award ceremonies, the woman that's getting battered, if it's EastEnders or one of those, and coroners, the woman that's getting battered receives the award, and the bloke that's battering her gets the other award. Wow. Yeah. You just don't, just don't think about that, do you? You know, and it's until you're in that environment, you learn that. And the reason for it, of course, is 
drama and mayhem and guns and stabbings easy to write sit down and write something funny mm. it's so difficult and also you've got to have the right actors you know quite quite a few of my colleagues sort of despaired at jeff i loved working with jeff who played hollis we're doing a canteen scene and they say to me what do you want well you don't want anything cooked because you know we've been sitting for hours so I, i'll just have a sandwich i loved having donuts but very often they didn't because it just went down the uniform when it used to drive wardrobe <laughs> department nuts <laughs> so i don't I, I have a sandwich and just said oh, i'll have a yogurt and a fork <laughs> that's classic just like that i mean that was my reaction and and we played this scene and he eats his yogurt with a fork and no mentions made of it at all oh. it is genius absolutely but He's I, a lovely man. I love it's, working with Jeff. It, it, it's a poignant moment, not because Reg Hollis, the character and the actor, is no longer with us, but a lot of the great characters are no longer with us. And I was just reflecting before we came on air, you know, people like Colin Tarrant and Kevin yeah. Lloyd and Tony yeah. Scannell, who only died a couple of years ago, played really iconic roles in the really bill. So it must be, there must be moments where you look back and you think, you know, yeah. we've lost some really lovely people who you work with over many episodes. Yeah. Again, I think... Um, with many, as you know, I, I do still do quite a lot on the on the, the knife crime side, but also on the drugs side. Yeah, um, I'm I'm one of the most boring people you'll ever meet. I've never taken anything purely, I think, because I've got a, the warped sense of humour that I just see the funny things in in the worst things. I I just I just do. I just don't think it. People used to say you are the worst person to argue with. And and you know. It, if someone's in turmoil, you try and be there. You know, both Kevin and and, and bless him had had real drink problems. And my industry, you know, it, it's massive in there. And also, drugs is quite big. And and you talk to the youngsters, and you kind of go, look, mate, you know, when you're out there and you're performing, that adrenaline, like you guys going on a call, that adrenaline, man, it's a hell of a drug. And if you put anything on top of that, and the problem is, if you start steering down that road, hopefully for the youngsters, perhaps listening to this. If you get into drink or you get into drugs, you start to think that's what's giving you the edge. Mm. And then you feel you can't do it without it. And there's many, many people seriously that I've worked with over the years, uh, 50 years doing this, you know, where you think, seriously, do you need that? Mm. We honest? talk about, we, we talk, we've, we've spoken about in previous episodes with, with ex-men and women who joined in the 70s and the 80s where there was that kind of, Mm. drinking culture to be able to deal with some of their exposure to trauma you know and sure. you know such words as ptsd and, and mental health and trauma there was this kind of canteen culture where you would talk amongst colleagues and you'd be able to mm. kind of absolutely yeah. alleviate well, pub, those stresses yeah. yeah exactly down the pub so now that's why it's so important to recognize organizations like ptsd 999 which you champion uh, like an absolute star from the top there in terms of the support mechanisms are out there to deal with some of these incredible stressful situations which mm. aren't just siloed to policing actors and other industries sure. suffer from exactly the same sort of stresses yeah and i think as well you know that uh, we need you heart back to ida gran you know she lived with us uh, she's yeah. the matriarch of the family and stuff now, you know, my kids don't really know their cousins and their aunts and uncles. One or two they do, but not many. That, that whole family unit sort of disappeared. And I think mm. certainly um, on the bill, we would show that community side and how that changed, how the buildings changed. I mean, I would say to people, if you want to look at what happened to London, watch the bills. In 25 years, you see the London skyline change completely. 
uh, so it's kind of a bit of a travelogue program as well. But yeah, we did. We highlighted that. Um, Trudy, Mark, and I were looking to do uh, with a new producer a show where we would go back to Sun Hill and um, look at old cases that we couldn't uh, um, crack at the time. But alas, ITV said, "Oh, we might bring the bill back." Well, well if you did this would enhance it it wouldn't kind of get in its way but you know ollie you're an industry and so everybody else you know the young people come in youngsters come in with new ideas and and it's a bit like there i mentioned on bbc and sort of uh, yeah they're djs and disappearing all that stuff we must have a younger audience must have a younger audience you know? what about the plus 50s there's more of us now than there is of anybody else yeah. and what is there what is there out there that you you know you want to watch you want to listen to i mean one of the greatest things i think the, the bill from its early days until its end was you could sit down with your kids yeah use your words we touched very sensitive subjects but you knew it would be done in that way yeah there were guns there were knives we were very careful you didn't see the knife and the body you either saw the body and the knife or the body and the gun. you didn't see them together and that sort of stuff which was very strange. the bill as well michael chapman bless who died a little while ago bless him who was our first uh, executive producer uh, brought up the concept the camera is the third member of the team so the audience arrive as we arrived you know we we're the only police series that you didn't see the crime before it happened before the police turned up we turn up and get the info as it's coming through and it was great again you know i'll be on the streets the next day and go, well i'll come it took you half an hour to work that out i knew in the first <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and that's and that's beautiful but yeah you're yeah you, you've got to look for tv and I always said to my exec, you know, I went out to Australia eight times on the back of the bill and I did my one-man show and that sort of stuff. And the one thing you say to look, never, ever take for granted your audience turning you on. And particularly now where you've got 300 channels, I mean, 288 of them, none of us would watch, but that's beside the point. Um, you know, that I always used to think, what an honour. And I'll be doing some of those scenes sometimes, Ollie trying to think, okay, they'd be sat around in their front room, you know, there'd be all, all sorts of problems that had you in the day. It's my job to alleviate that, maybe take them into another world for a little while, as indeed yeah. that's what theatre is for. Um, but it's huge. Don't ever take for granted your audience and, and always be aware that what you're saying and what you're doing will be looked at and judged. You know, when I left the bill, uh, I didn't say anything at all to anybody. The press screwed me to the floor. And it had nothing at all to do with me about um, how upset I was about leaving the bill and all that stuff. It was absolutely, and my daughter was with me when I did an interview. Um, I won't say which paper. Um, and when it came out, Laura said, you didn't say that. You didn't say it. No. And that's the other problem we have in this country at the moment, I think. And you guys, if I make say that in policing, it's too easy a headline. It's just too easy. It is at the and, moment, but what I was what I was going to say is, and I wanted to talk about briefly to kind of round up is, is behind every police officer, I often talk about the unsung heroes because it's our wives, it's our families that yeah. allow us to do the jobs that we do and give us the ability to manage the home whilst we go off and we're able to consume ourselves in this world. Mm. You are no different in your life. You've had a wife that you've been married to for more than 40 years. You've got a son and a daughter. You've got grandchildren. Um, obviously your wife has been your biggest supporter in your corner through that entire career. It must be uh, obviously been a great support and allowed you to do what you do. Without Cherry, I wouldn't have a home and I wouldn't have kids. Mm. It is as simple as that. And when she met, she was a very successful model when we met. 
uh, she was going off to do uh, shows in Paris and I was going to Scunthorpe to do some play or other. But uh, yeah, she's amazing. And most importantly, doesn't care about my business. She thinks it's very cruel. Um, it's the award ceremonies. Um, don't reward the people that should be rewarded. You're absolutely right. Three, four hundred people behind us all the time. But your family is vital. Uh, Cherry is incredible. And if you bear in mind, you know, for the first 12 years of our relationship, I was on the road the whole time. Uh, she'd be coming down on national buses all over the country. 40 pantos I've been in, 35 pantomimes away from home at Christmas. Uh, it's huge. It's huge. And, you know, your wife brings up the kids if you, if you can, if you've got the right digs. Or you go home Christmas Eve, having done two shows, knowing Christmas Day, you'll do the best you can with the family. But in your back of your mind is, I've got two shows tomorrow on Boxing Day. And you've got to get 300 miles or whatever it is. I think one of the dichotomies of my show, of, of business, has been the fact of Panto particularly, where you you see the family, they're all happy, you, you've done your job, they've gone out, they're going to go back home. The, you go back to your digs and you ring your family. Mm -hmm. it's, uh, and I think that's one of the reasons why I really get into mental health is that it could have been so different for me. I just have whatever it is in, in my DNA that, that it's not the case for me. But... That is why I do it, in that those that don't, you know, they talk about the black dog, don't they? And, uh, you know, Gary Hayes, bless him, who, who's the founder of Post Matter Stress 999, uh, we go all over the country doing these gigs, and, uh, wow, his story is incredible. And, and so do the police officers, you know, they don't really do award ceremonies anymore for police officers. I think it's quite sad. I, I did 20 or 30 of them when Sky and I think it was The Sun supported it. And it was amazing, you know, they bring the families down, they go around um, Downing Street and all that during the day, and then at night they come in and we do the award ceremonies and the stories you hear of how these guys got their awards, and they're always, always dismissive about it. But you get the chance to meet the wives and you chat to them, and how important is that? And uh, one of my favourites is, is Saving Lives at Sea, you know, the RNLI. How do those wives, you know, wave goodbye to their husband? I mean, I wouldn't do that job, and it's not a job, is it? They only get paid. Um, but yeah, without Cherry, it, there would be nothing uh, in my life. Uh, to know that that stability is there and that she'll carry on. I mean, e even now, you know, I'm doing two short films at the moment, one horror. I'm playing a Catholic priest in one who's very good at um, getting rid of spirits. And in the other, it's called Confessions. And as I said, working with youngsters, these guys are just coming out of um, Derby University. New cameras, new lights, you see, and I, I, it's just, I'm working with them. Their, their enthusiasm is fantastic. And it's a great character to play. He, he gate crashes people's funerals, basically, and, and uh, speaks on behalf of whoever is laying in the box about what he really wanted. And this wasn't what he wanted at all, was it? I mean, it's such a, <laughs> such a clever concept. And we're filming up in Chatsworth House, uh, which is a wonderful, wonderful setting. It's just so much fun. And, wow, Ollie, you know, the phone still rings. And I'm, I'm a very, very, very fortunate. And I've got Tyler now, my grandson, who is amazing. Just before I came to you, we were playing Hot Wheels, you know. Um, and that's life, isn't it? Hot Wheels to Ollie. <laughs> well, Graham Cole, recipient of the OBE, um, it's been an absolute honour and a pleasure to listen to the last hour and 20 minutes of your career. Oh, I'm sorry, I do prattle on. In, in acting and uh, almost a bit of a this is your life in repeat with Michael Aspel, but I'm not as good as Michael <laughs> Aspel. 
But what a fantastic, and I suppose on behalf of me, my colleagues, the podcast, and everyone that's witnessed you over 20 years portray such an incredible character. Thank you for the inspiration. Thank you for the representation. And uh, we wish you all the best with your upcoming commitments. And uh, thank you ever so much for taking part. Thanks, Lonnie. Goodbye, everybody. You're going to make a fantastic instructor. I just hope you can teach those young'uns a thing or two. And maybe I'll get a bit of respect for a change. <laughs> well, you couldn't have more, here. Yeah? But if you don't give me the chance to say this later. It's been an absolute pleasure, Tony. Protect and Serve is a Mash Pumpkin production. Hosted by Oliver Lawrence. Research and questions by Oliver Lawrence and Robert Wynn Stanley. Produced, edited and sound designed by Jack Lawrence.